HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative, a nonprofit with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Change menus, change lives. Learn more at chefscollaborative.org. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network. We're a member-supported food radio network broadcasting over 35 weekly shows live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. Join our hosts as they lead you through the world of craft brewing, behind the scenes of the restaurant industry, inside the battle over school food, and beyond. Find us at heritageradionetwork.org. How do you say food tech in French? Find out on this episode of Tech Bites. Hello, hello, Heritage Radio Network listeners, listeners in 65 countries around the world, and I'm betting a bunch of them from France, which is good because today we have some very interesting French tech companies here to talk a little bit about tech across the pond and what tech is like here by comparison, and maybe we'll do some very good uh, Franco-American relations in spite of everything else. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. I am your host of Tech Bytes. Every week we talk about the intersection of food and technology. And we talk about that live on the radio from the backyard of Roberta's Pizza in Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you listen to the show regularly, every now and again you might hear a low hum of people eating and carousing in the background. And that is actually Roberta's Pizza. The studio is two repurposed shipping containers nestled right up against one of the dining rooms of the restaurant. So we are going to start off this episode of Tech Bytes like we always do. We're going to go around the shipping container and talk about apps, apps we love, old favorites, new ones we've discovered. We'll start off with the most important man on the show, the man in mission control who turns the conversation into the amazing podcast, David Tadashore, our engineer and Heritage Radio's studio manager. Hello, that's me. But certainly you are the most important woman on the show. That goes without saying. Well, that's true. So that's good. So it's like one of each. Yeah, exactly. Right. So we don't have to fight it out. Yeah, we're like a mom and dad. For supremacy. 
<laughs> and this is our baby. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. Do you have an app? And our baby just turned 100 not too long ago. That's right. Our, our old and venerable baby. Exactly. Our centurion. Yeah. Um, but like Benjamin Button, it's like it's getting newer and fresher the older it gets. Exactly. I like that analogy. Yeah. I'll take fresher and younger You're as welcome. time goes by. <laughs> Do you have an app for us that you like this week? Uh, yeah. So this isn't anything new, but with all of the uh, you know exciting congressional hearings happening lately, uh, Periscope. Oh, yes. An oldie but a goodie. Yeah. So, you know, as, as I'm here in the uh, shipping containers, mission control, I, I can't really uh, tune in live to the hearings. But Periscope allows me uh, in a free moment to catch a glimpse into what's going on. So you prefer to go to Periscope and then um, is, is there a particular person or entity's feed that you're following? Or um, I find Facebook actually is really a good source for those things because there's a multitude of entities in media and politics that are always broadcasting live a lot of these things. Yeah, yeah. I, I think it really, maybe the nice thing about Periscope is that you have so many choices, like you can get a reputable news organization, but you can also sort of surf around and see who else is broadcasting and um, yeah, sort of see how people are feeling about things. Interesting. I, it would also be interesting to try and see which feeds are original and which ones are co to kind of see who's in the room. Fake also. news. Fake news. Made up news. The news of make-believe. Mm -hmm. Periscope. Periscope had a big impact last year when they um, shut down the C-SPAN coverage in the, was it in the Senate when they were taking a vote on something yeah, and the Democrats uh, all started broadcasting were, on Periscope? Yeah, they were filibustering something, I think. Mm -hmm. um, I can't recall exactly. But, yeah, that, that played a big role in keeping people's attention focused on that. So It's yeah. worth noting that when I did a little research into that story last year, Periscope, just prior to that, had done a sort of uh, how-to introductory course at the Democratic National offices in D.C. to show people how to use it and what it would be useful for. So I think it was top of mind and probably uh, perhaps even new technology for some of the people who jumped on it and were like, this is the perfect moment for me yeah. to well, broadcast. They need all the help they can get, right? Yeah, we all need all the help we can get. Okay, Periscope, maybe. And then that brings us around to maybe we should live broadcast or Periscope an episode at some point. We could Mevo the episode with our brand new Mevo camera. Yes, Another day, though. I'll Not save that today. one for next week. Okay. Sounds good. Joining us from far away in France, we have Karem Kinouche, who has a company called Novolives. Karem, is, is this your first trip to the States or no? Um, hello, Jennifer. No, no not exactly. Um, I've been here uh, quite a while in the last few years as we developed... Um, products actually targeting the U.S. market, which is really moving a lot towards uh, new food safety habits. And so when you come and visit the States, do you have um, apps that you like to use when you travel? Do you have things that work in France that don't work here? Or your favorite app works all the time? Well, yeah, uh, you'll, you'll find me extremely boring, but I'm a big user of uh, Google, all Google apps uh, in general, because wherever you go in the world, it works just perfect, and Uber as well. 
And yeah, there would be an app we use in France that I miss a bit when I'm here. Uh, called La Fourchette, uh, which means uh, the fork, mm-hmm. and it's uh, it's an app to find a restaurant. Just just uh, awesome in Paris when you're looking for a good place to have uh, dinner or lunch uh, with good discounts as well. So La Fourchette, so it's a restaurant guide, and then it also offers you discounts to yeah, places. Absolutely. So when you are here in New York, do you have an app that you use to try and find restaurants, or no, or do you just wander around until you come across something you like? I'll just grab the first uh, first place I like from the outside. Okay. But I would miss places like this, which are just uh, awesome. Yes, yeah. this 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 place you definitely have to make an effort to go to. Yeah. It's a little off the beaten track. <laughs> okay, le le fourchette. That's interesting. Sitting next to him, we have Dominique Cagnon, who is from a company called Biotrac, and next to him is his associate Olivier. De la Motte. <laughs> I was debating whether or not we were going to give him a, a royal title, but I decided to go a little more democratic. Um, Dominique, do you have a, an app that you like to use that you maybe um, use to travel or use at home, can't use here, can use here? I use very classic apps, uh, Waze, for example, mm-hmm. that I use in the United States to find my way in uh, L.A., for example. It's very useful. You have, do you use it in France also? Uh, yes, uh, everywhere, in okay. fact. Everywhere, because it's uh, the way uh, not to be lost in, uh, in big town. And I, am, uh, I use very often uh, uh, TripAdvisor, too, mm-hmm. to find the good restaurant. And uh, YouTube, so apps, very, very classic. So I am sorry. But you know, it's, it's. I, I would not necessarily have thought about Waze as being an international app. We've had people talk about it on this show for driving, mostly driving trips outside the city. But it's interesting to uh, see which things are more international and global, and which things are more local. Olivier, do you have a? app that you like or use when you travel? Um, hello, Jennifer. Hello, bonjour. <laughs> um, Shazam. Oh, an oldie but a goodie. Yeah. Yep. yeah. And, and it works everywhere, so it's, it's good. When was the last time you used it? I believe this morning. Really? Yeah. Where were you? Uh, in the hotel. In and the hotel uh, with the lobby music yeah. playing? Yeah, uh, I just wanted to know what was the, uh, the, the, the tune that was playing. That's fantastic. So, well, obviously you're in a good hotel if they were playing good music. Mm, I don't know. <laughs> Shazam. Well, you know, there's nothing wrong with uh, the classics, you know, because they definitely keep enduring. What would you say the most popular apps are right now in France? The ones that people talk about. Is Fourchette, La Fourchette very popular? Is it the news apps? Is it is it like here where it's Uber and Facebook yeah, and Uber, Instagram? Yeah, Uber, Facebook, Instagram, Pinterest, everything. Is there Sna- any Snapchat? Snapchat too, for, uh, with uh, young people. Mm-hmm. Is there anything that is uh, specific to France? That's a very French app that we don't have here that you think is great, or maybe something we should adopt? Because we love to take French things and then make the American version. Do you know Do you know Marmiton? No. <laughs> it's a cooking. Uh, it's a cooking app. Okay. But I'm pretty sure that it, that you must have the uh, English version for it. What is it called? Marmiton. Marmiton. Yeah. Okay, I'm going to write that down, and we will find out. 
So as we said at the top of the show, these gentlemen are here. Um, there are a lot of food events happening in June in New York City. There are conferences about tech, hospitality, food media, openings, the Big Apple barbecue. This, I think the, the two middle weeks in June are perhaps two of the busiest weeks that I've seen so far this year. And to that, there is a very uh, big food tech event happening in New York called Food Future Tech. And so on the occasion of that, Business France put together an event called Le Food Tech Lab to bring some French food tech companies to the U.S., so I think part of the program was for you all to have an opportunity to hear from American uh, advisors and business people and investors in the food tech space to help you do some research to adapt your businesses here. Was there what was what was the most interesting thing that you learned about the American food tech space and food tech business? Um. I would say most interesting thing is to see that people care about food tech. Oh, okay. Yes. Yeah, you know, yeah, not so long ago, people just um, were not that much uh, interested in the, in the food tech, especially from um, a VC point of view, because it was, you know, it was kind of old-fashioned, and now it's just becoming really, really busy. And uh, we're just very excited to see that everyone is looking at uh, at food as uh, you know the the next uh, next way of making uh, you know the, the the next Facebook basically because this is what we're we're speaking about when it comes to investing in new startups. So yes, it's uh, it's nice, good recognition to see that uh, there is potential and people realize there is a lot of technology in the around the food. Uh, not only the way of using um, apps to go to the restaurant and to way of living, which is obviously changing every everybody's day uh, uh, daily life, but also in um, every way of producing the food, uh, really from uh, from farm to fork. So it's plenty of technologies coming up, and it's really the beginning of a lot of uh, disruptions in the industry. Do you think that, and for for all of you, do you think that the interest level? Uh, for food tech in the United States is um, bigger than the interest in France? Is it smaller than the interest in France? Is it all the same? Is, uh, you know, VC funding and uh, tech startups, is the interest level just become international now and it's kind of all the same everywhere you go? I know, um, Olivier, you have some time in London as well as in Paris, you know, in the business world. Are we just in one market now, or do we still have differences between the U.S. market and the French market? Well, actually, we thought, coming here, we thought that uh, there were a, a, a number of differences, which is always true uh, for cultural reasons. But, the, uh, but what we discovered is that uh, not only on the VC side, which is large, large, really bigger here in the U.S., of course, uh, the... Um, but things like food waste, which was really typical of our country, uh, reflect reflection about this and how to uh, how to try to reduce it, so, uh, is now a, a real concern for the uh, for the U.S. consumer too. So that's good news, and uh, it, and it shows that things are really changing everywhere. Dominique, what was the most interesting, surprising thing that you learned this week? 
that um, that surprised me a lot during these two days is that uh, food take is maybe a new way of life in America. Oh, that's an interesting observation. Because uh, you know, uh, on one part you have food, on another part you have take, and it seems quite different, in fact. And when you put it together, you create something that is uh, far more than uh, technical things or uh, a technical food. I think you create a really different way of life. For example, um, eat better, eat different, eat new things. And that's um, there is something really, um, really incredible in America that almost everything is possible. Almost everything is possible. Yeah, that that sounds pretty uh, close to the, you know, American dream concept of of life here. You know, you can be anything, even president of the United States. Anybody can. Um, do you think this uh, enha- this new way of life, when you put together food and technology, um, and I agree with you, I have a show dedicated to this subject because I, I believe that it has a very, very great impact on our lives and will continue for years to come. But do you think the food and technology creating a new lifestyle, do you think that's something special just for food? Or do you think that technology has become such a integrated part in our lives that technology plus everything is creating a new lifestyle? I think it could be a connected, uh, connected world for a better world because um, when you have connected food you can have information but you can have also uh, tools uh, and uh, uh, plays, uh, playing or something that um, that uh, how can I say that uh, improve uh, the, the uh, consumer experience. Mm-hmm. The consumer, you know, the consumer experience when you when you are testing, for example, uh, something new, and uh, take food, for example, in France we have uh, molecular gastronomy. Yes, and uh, we have that here too. Uh, we got it from France. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Actually, I think we got it from Spain. Maybe a little from uh, France. Uh, from France too, because yes. I, I am working too in an engineer school for life science in mm-hmm. Paris, and uh, we have Hervétis. Uh, uh, he is the very, very famous grandfather of molecular gastronomy. Okay. So it's a friend. Hervétis uh, <laughs> is a friend, and uh, he he made me discover uh, molecular food. And uh, there is a new food now from Hervétis, uh, uh, cooking note by note. Uh, and um, take is um, all that, you know, so it can be very, very different things. I am sure of something. Um, it really could be uh, a better way to, uh, to eat and a better way to feed the, the planet. That's very. Um, that's a very uh, thoughtful and almost philosophical uh, view about food technology, which seems to be much more uh, human and 
hopeful than we normally think about things on the technology side. On the technology side, we think very much about scaling and iterations and mass and reach and those kinds of things. So that was very thoughtful. It's, 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 uh, I like what you are saying because I am a, the tech guy, you know, the, the, <laughs> the CTO. Uh, and uh, I am used to say in my school that digitalization is a question of human. The human must be at the center of digitalization of the world. That's very important. So that's a lot like creative, what we call creative design theory yeah. and creative design yeah. practice here, where you put the user at the center of all of your um, iterations and research and versus putting the process or the product yes. exactly. first. So... When did you all arrive in New York on Monday or earlier this week? Sunday for me. Sunday? Okay. So you've had a few days here, and do you think that you would be moving towards having businesses here as well? Both of your companies are focused definitely towards doing work in America and for American companies. Do you foresee moving your operations here, keeping them there, having both? Well, do we have to choose, really? Um, no. Well, uh, you know, the largest customers for us are in the U.S., definitely. So we're going to develop the, the sales team here. Um, we already have someone in uh, California out of Modesto. Um, hello, Gina, when you will listen to this. <laughs> um, she's now on vacation in Europe, so see, we're, uh, we're traveling a lot in Novalize. So definitely de developing the U.S. Is, uh, is key for us. It will be a driver in food safety for the next five to ten years. Uh, so we need to be here. We need to be uh, really, uh, you know, making customers uh, happy. Uh, we're already supplying 10 out of the 30 um, largest food manufacturing companies, including a couple of very large American companies. And we really want to, uh, to have a full presence here with operations as well. Do you want to tell us what those companies are? Uh, well, um, I'm not sure they would be very happy about that. You don't have to say anything if it's yeah. you know, in the, sort of the non-disclosure arena. Very quickly, tell us what your company does. Uh, we do microbes. Um, very, very, very basically, in food safety, there are very way, many ways of um, addressing the food safety issue. You know, every year there is still uh, about 600 uh, million people sick. Um, many buying food from trusted companies and 420,000 of them uh, die as well every year all over the world so sampling you know for looking for the bad microbes in the food is something we've been doing uh, for a very long time and the more you sample the more chance you have to find the bad bug and uh, separate the product and preserve the consumer but the problem is that it's not enough there are some uh, microorganisms some bacterias which are extremely sporadic. Uh, for example, in the case of uh, almond, it's a very well-known case in the U.S., if you do a normal sampling following the usual sampling plans, you have about one chance in 10 million to find a salmonella in a container of almonds. But you know that 100% of the time there is one. So there is another way... And we don't think about salmonella being in an almond. We think about it being on chicken, for the most part, in the United States. We really don't think about that often about salmonella on anything that's not a raw meat just because of yeah. perception things you hear about in the news and the story so people would probably be 
when when we do have those stories yeah. about salmonella on produce, um, it's always very surprising. Well, uh, yeah, and uh, that was back in 2001. More than 100 people were sick because of salmonella on almonds. And if I remember correctly, nearly 10 people died. So, you know, it's a, it's a very serious business. So since then, the, um, the, the FDA worked with the scientists and they developed what we call a validation protocol for pasteurization systems. So they're asking everyone in the U.S. to pasteurize the almonds. So all the almonds you're consuming here are pasteurized. And you Which need basically to, means cooking something to um, a certain temperature so that you kill all of the bad microbes, more or less. Well, more it's or very, less. very simple terms. Well, yes, that's right. Um, if you do it uh, gently, you, you're hitting just the outside of the almond to kill the bacteria without mm -hmm. damaging the product inside. Right. That's, the, that's the whole challenge. But you're right. You know, otherwise, you just cook it and it doesn't taste the same. Right. You want to kill the bacteria. Mm -hmm. And to, to make uh, the right process to kill the pathogen, you need a way to prove in what condition it will work and what are the limits. So we have designed a, a ready-to-use bacteria, which is non-pathogenic, not dangerous, and it behaves in the same way as a salmonella. So we introduce it in the process of the customer. We put the, the product through the process, the killing process to kill the bacteria, and then we see how many bacteria were di uh, died and how many survived, and then we can evaluate how the process works. So it's sort of a uh, food tech, we have an expression... You may have the same one in France. I don't know. Probably not. Um, it's called canary in a coal mine. <laughs> no, I don't know. Can you say that in French? Um, I don't know what the word for coal mine is in French. Um, mine de charbon. Ah, okay. coal mine. Oh. Coal. Okay, Where you go underground yeah. to yes. take yes. the coal. So the idea was that you had a bird in a cage, a yes. canary, the... Yeah, the, the Petit the oiseau. Oh, yes. And then it would go down into the mine... And they were very sensitive to the air and the gases and things like that. And they're very small, so mm. it wouldn't take very much for there to be gas in the air <coughs> that would kill the canary. So exactly. if the canary died or started to get sick, then you would know that it's time for the people to go because yeah. it's a, not a good environment. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. I, I, I love the image. I will use it uh, during my next pitches. Yeah. Uh, yes, yes, that's exactly the idea. Sort of. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's a so canary. So you put it through and you see what's alive and what's not, and if it's still yes. there, then you have a problem. Yeah, that's the right. reverse of it, maybe. That's, you know, that's an interesting, an interesting idea. I would be curious. Uh, well, and similarly, Biotrack is also looking at the food safety of perishable goods, but from a temperature perspective, yes? You, you take a look at the... Little more than temperature. Well, to be very simplistic. But let's, let's uh, keep the temperature. Mm. Um, actually, what we do is uh, we try to make the uh, cold chain smarter to reduce waste. So a cold chain, how would you describe that for people? Because I would guess that most listeners it's don't. It's the supply it's not, chain yeah. for fresh products, let's say. It so has you, to, if you have something that basically needs to be refrigerated or kept in the freezer, when it ships from where it's produced to your store, it needs to be shipped in a way that maintains the correct temperature for the integrity of the product, think about ice cream that you don't want to melt. So you want it, your ice cream to stay at the right consistency, but you also want it to stay at the right temperature so that none of these bad microbes spring into action. So when you're shipping from, 
when you're shipping cheese from France to New York, it has to maintain a cold chain. So that is tracked yeah. during the shipping process. So then you jump in at what point? Yeah, because about 25% of uh, food waste takes place in the supply chain. Okay, 25%. That's a lot. Yeah, it's a lot. So uh, it depends on the where in the world because that's a, a number for the at global level. It's the um, FAO uh, that gives that number. The uh, but it's true that in the in the cold chain, so for perishable products, they are very sensitive to temperature, uh, to humidity, to shocks, to light, and uh, so we monitor that and we calculate in real time from the environment of the products their quality and so the impact on their quality. And uh, so we, we provide a new information that operators didn't have so far, uh, which is the quality of their products. So when they have uh, any incidents on their chain... Uh, which could be uh, an airplane is delayed somewhere, and so example, it's going to sit yeah. in a container on the tarmac or for an extra few hours in an airplane waiting to take off or something like that. Exactly. Even the course of you know transportation there as we all know especially if you're in new york and you ride the subway transportation has delays <laughs> so it's exactly this example and uh so at that time um, um the operator who is in charge of the product he, he's responsible for 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 the safety for the uh, of the product and so because he has no tools so far what he does he just throw it away and that explains why mainly we have 25% of loss uh, during the supply chain. That's amazing. 25% uh, just right off the top. That's a lot. That's a lot to lose. Um, we are going to take a quick break right now. And we're not going to talk about losing. We're going to talk about winning. We're going to talk about winning and being supported by our amazing sponsors and underwriters. Heritage Radio Network is a .org, which means we are a nonprofit 501c3. And that means we keep the lights on with support from wonderful companies like this one. This program is brought to you by Chefs Collaborative a national nonprofit network with a mission to inspire, educate, and celebrate chefs and food professionals building a better food system. Chefs Collaborative members work to make sustainable practices second nature for every chef in the United States. Chefs Collaborative was founded in 1993 by visionary chefs including Rick Bayless and Alice Waters, who acknowledged the influential role of food professionals on our food choices, our collective personal health, the vitality of cultures, and the integrity of the global environment. Chefs Collaborative believes that the greater culinary community can be a catalyst for positive change by expanding the market for good food and helping to preserve local farming and fishing communities. Change menus, change lives. Learn more about Chefs Collaborative at chefscollaborative.org. <laughs> Bonjour, mes amis, les amis de Heritage Radio Network. Je suis Jennifer Leutzi. Et tous les semaines, je suis dans le jardin de Roberta's en Bushwick, Brooklyn, pour faire une épisode de radio sur le sujet de la technologie et la gastronomie. Aujourd'hui, on a la chance d'avoir euh, trois personnes qui sont arrivées à New York de la France pour parler à un événement qui s'appelle le Food Tech Lab. 
pour apprendre un peu ce qui se passe aux États-Unis dans le rayon de tech, les startups. Donc, Karem Kinouche, qui a une compagnie qui s'appelle Novolis, il est intéressé par le food safety et sa compagnie a été précisée, fait avec une focus pour le marché américain, qui est un peu intéressant pour une compagnie française de faire un focus sur le marché américain. Oui, bonjour. Euh, effectivement, on s'est focalisé sur le marché US hein, parce qu'on a, on a vu euh, les réglementations évoluer depuis plusieurs années, depuis 2011. Et votre précédent, euh, précédent président a mis en place des nouvelles réglementations qui vont être euh, déployées à partir de 2016 jusqu'à 2020 à peu près. Hein. Donc oui, le marché US pour nous est très, très important. Est-ce que c'est parce que c'est juste un des marchés les plus gros et qu'on a beaucoup plus de business juste parce que à cause de la taille de business et de le pays ou est-ce qu'il y a quelque chose de particulier de faire de business ici Non, c'est vraiment l'évolution réglementaire. C'est-à-dire que le fait que la réglementation change sur le plus gros marché va driver le reste du monde. Et même en Europe, on commence à voir quelques impacts. Les entreprises américaines implantées en Europe demandent aujourd'hui à leurs fournisseurs de se conformer aux attentes du marché américain. Et par ricochet, on a aussi des, des clients aujourd'hui en Inde, en Indonésie, qui nous demandent de, nous, de les aider à se conformer au marché américain. Donc vous avez été ici pour apprendre un peu à ce qui se passe aux états unis et puis peut-être aussi pour trouver des gens qui ont été intéressés de faire un investissement dans la compagnie. Est-ce que ça a été un succès cette semaine à New York Ah oui, on a fait des, des super rencontres, vraiment. On a eu un intérêt très important à la fois des, des clients utilisateurs finaux, des grandes, donc des grandes multinationales hein, qui sont les, les, les industries américaines, et aussi des investisseurs qui se rendent compte qu'au niveau de, de la technologie, de la food tech et de la recherche scientifique, euh, on a quelques bonnes idées et on est capable de les mettre en œuvre en France. Et ça peut sans doute donner, donner lieu à de belles, de belles histoires aux états unis <rire> On a aussi dans le studio euh, les, les gens qui travaillent en compagnie qui s'appelle Biotrack. On a Dominique Cagnon et son collègue Olivier Delamotte. Uh, leur compagnie, ça travaille uh, dans une... Uh, C'est intéressant, je ne sais pas exactement comment l'expliquer dans les termes techniques, uh, mais ça suit uh, les produits en transport qui doivent être uh, gardés frais et qui prennent des informations à la minute pour que s'il y a des problèmes, les compagnies peuvent décider s'il faut garder ou jeter le produit. C'est ça C'est exactement ça. OK. Donc, même raison, vous êtes ici la semaine pour voir quelles sont les opportunités aux États-Unis. Est-ce que ça a été un succès intéressant Alors, c'est intéressant. En succès, c'est un peu tôt pour le savoir. Hein. Mais c'est intéressant. Et surtout, ça nous permet de comprendre mieux ce que l'on peut faire avec euh, le marché américain ou sur le marché américain. Euh, où est-ce qu'on peut agir hein, et tout ce qu'il faut qu'on fasse encore pour pouvoir progresser, pour être prêt pour le marché américain parce que ce n'est pas un marché sur lequel euh, c'est facile de venir. Et qu'est-ce que c'est l'intérêt le, dans le marché américain spécifique pour vous euh, Il y a beaucoup de pertes dans la supply chain américaine. Au moins, 20, 25% vous non, avez 25% dit. ça c'est worldwide oh, mondial, mais au moins euh, on a des données très précises sur euh, tout ce qui est euh, produit frais, périssable euh, au moins un camion sur sept qui a, euh, est perdu avant d'arriver chez le distributeur hein. donc c'est quand même entre 15 et 20% hein, 
impressionnant de penser de toute la nourriture qui est complètement perdue, même avant ça, ça arrive au supermarché ou même qui arrive dans la maison. Les Américains sont de plus en plus intéressés euh, par rapport à ce sujet, la perte de nourriture, parce que si on peut garder toute la nourriture qui est perdue, euh, on sera bien mieux en place pour faire manger tout le monde. Le défi, euh, aujourd'hui, on a des nouvelles estimations. En 2050, on va être presque 10 milliards d'habitants sur la planète. Euh, il va falloir à peu près 70% de plus de nourriture que ce qui existe aujourd'hui. Donc, euh, tous les moyens sont bons. C'est développer la nourriture, mais c'est aussi éviter de la perdre. Donc, même question. Est-ce que vous pensez éventuellement d'être ici à New York pour les bureaux, le business et tout ça Ou est-ce que l'idée, c'est d'avoir une compagnie qui travaille dans le marché américain, mais de la France si on vient, <rire> si on vient, si on a des clients, non, c'est pour le faire sérieusement, on sera basé ici aussi. Et juste en général, les produits français, est-ce qu'on sait quel pourcentage sont sur l'exportation pour les États-Unis Les Alors, produits alimentaires, à mon avis, un peu quand même. J'ai aucune idée. Aucune idée. Aucune idée. Ok. Donc, pendant la semaine, vous avez plusieurs euh, séances, euh, convocations. Qu'est-ce que ça a été l'idée le, le ou le concept le plus impressionnant que vous avez appris cette semaine? Ça peut être bien, ça peut être mauvais, ça peut être euh, sur des investissements, je, sur le marché, sur New York, oui. sur le métro. Euh. Je, je, je pense qu'il y a une prise de conscience euh, ici, chez vous, euh, de, de changements qu'il faut apporter, à la fois donc, dans la supply chain, c'est assez, assez technique finalement vis-à-vis -vis des consommateurs, parce que les consommateurs ne pensent jamais supply chain. Mais en bout de supply chain, il y a la qualité des produits. Et moi, ce qui m'a beaucoup frappé, c'est que j'ai entendu des choses que j'aurais pu entendre en France, où euh, les consommateurs veulent manger mieux, veulent manger différemment, et que du coup, euh, il, il ne s'agit plus seulement de s'alimenter, donc de voir la nourriture comme le fuel euh, que l'on apporte à, à l'être humain, que moi j'ai un petit peu connu, puisque j'ai connu les, les états unis il y a longtemps avec des amis qui habitaient en Californie, donc... Euh, euh, là, j'avais eu un choc culturel parce que je, je venais euh, d'une famille qui faisait beaucoup de cuisine et j'ai appris ce que c'était que la junk food, de, de, de manger des, des, des cacahuètes à midi, enfin, de ne pas avoir un repas tel que nous, on l'entend en France. Et alors, ce qui est très étonnant, c'est que finalement, je me rends compte que euh, non seulement vous êtes emparé du sujet, mais euh, que les consommateurs américains pourraient devenir euh, sans doute... Euh, plus exigeants que les consommateurs européens dans plein de cas de figure en, en se préoccupant de, 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 de tas de choses comme la texture, l'innovation produit, euh, la sensation, l'originalité euh, et donc finalement euh, de, de mettre finalement la nourriture peut-être un peu plus au cœur de ce que ça a pu être précédemment. Je demande si ce n'est pas juste simplement une un différence euh entre la cuisine et le point de vue gastronomie de la France et la cuisine et le point de vue américain. Je pense que la France et la plupart de, de pays en Europe 
ils ont une culture autour de ce qu'on mange, une alimentation, une cuisine qui est très proche de ce que les Américains ont envie d'avoir maintenant et que les Américains sont en train de changer leur point de vue qui est en train d'arriver d'un sens à un point de vue qui a été dans la France depuis uh, des centaines d'années. Mon mari, il est un cuisinier français, c'est un chef français. Et des fois, quand on parle de, des sujets, de choses qui se passent dans le média, comme le concept de « je vais cuisiner avec un poulet et je vais utiliser tous les éléments de poulet et rien jeter », et ça, c'est peut-être un concept nouveau pour les Américains parce qu'on a normalement le poulet, c'est juste les suprêmes dans une paquet, c'est même pas le poulet entier. Lui, il me regarde et puis il dit, ben en France, on a ça depuis euh, depuis toujours quoi. Donc il y a peut-être des certaines choses qu'on arrive euh, de découvrir, d'avoir envie, qui a été déjà en place, juste comme la vie quotidienne en, en France. Oui, non. <rire> euh, J'étais juste en train de m'imaginer le, le, le poulet rôti réduit au blanc, qui est, je pense, le morceau euh, à, 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 je veux dire, que l'on cherche à éviter en repas Mais de famille. Même quand France. on parle juste de, de, de la profession de cuisinier, j'ai travaillé en France en cuisine, et quand on a reçu les produits le matin... Et on avait, par exemple, des carrés d'agneau sur la carte. On a reçu un agneau entier. Et puis, ça a été le boulot de la personne qui a été à la station de viande de couper l'agneau dans tous les morceaux. Aux États-Unis, en cuisine, même des cuisines qui sont des très, très bons euh, maisons de, des étoiles Michelin et tout ça, on recevait des côtes d'agneau dans une paquet. Et puis dans les écoles de cuisine, même professionnelles, il n'y a pas beaucoup de cours et d'études sur la boucherie et des choses comme ça. Quoi. Donc il y a juste un aspect de la culture américaine où ça vient d'une façon, ça vient, les produits viennent déjà un peu préparés, déjà coupés. Et en France, les produits arrivent beaucoup plus dans une condition originale et naturelle. Oui, peut-être que sur le qu'aux États-Unis, on a poussé à l'extrême toute l'industrialisation du produit pour avoir vraiment le morceau que l'on cherchait en oubliant tout ce qu'il y avait autour et qu'au bout d'un moment, on s'est rendu compte qu'il y avait on avait, on avait au passage euh, omis un certain nombre de, de parties, de, euh, de, de méthodes de préparation qui, qui méritaient d'être réintégrées. Donc voilà, quand on parlait du poulet, c'est vrai que le, le croupion, hein, c'est un morceau qu'on que le, que qui n'est pas très glamour, euh, mais il y a toujours quelqu'un pour manger le croupion euh, à table lors, euh, lors d'un repas de famille. Voilà. <rire> exact. Donc, euh, on, a, on a plus de temps à parler euh, et on va changer et terminer l'émission en anglais. At the end of all of my shows, I always like to ask my guests for a little piece of advice for the people listening at home. So, you gentlemen travel a lot for business you're flying around on airplanes you're looking for restaurants and things like that do you have any advice for people on when you travel what's the best way to find a good restaurant hmm. sans le fourchette 
Well, uh, without La Fourchette, um, obviously talking to people, um, talking to people, wandering in the streets, and it depends a lot on the country. Uh, I would not do the same when I travel to India or China or um, when I'm coming to the U.S., Uh, so yes, talking to people, using social media, chatting with friends, asking for recommendations, and uh, just discover and don't expect to eat the same thing in the same way as you do it at home and just enjoy the whole experience more than the food itself. That's very good advice. There's a, a thumb rule. About thumb this. rule? What's yeah. the thumb rule? Yeah. And you can't see it because it's radio, but he put his hand up in the classic... You know, Fonzie, happy days, thumbs up. So you never go in a restaurant where you see only tourists. Oh, very <laughs> good. Okay. And you never go in an empty restaurant. Okay. Those are very good rules. So by thumbs up, you are meaning the approval and the endorsement of local people. Yeah. And you do that by seeing if the local people are actually in the establishment. Exactly. Okay. That is very good advice. That's especially, I think, really good advice Um, I do the same thing when I travel abroad and are and when I'm in marketplaces and things like that. If you're in the market, you know, in anywhere at a market stall and there's one that's really busy and one that's empty, there's a reason why the one that's busy is busy. Absolutely. It's worth it's worth the wait in line. Do you have a, a good tip for people on how to find in, a restaurant? In fact, it's exactly the same tip that, uh, than uh, Oliver. Uh, I, I tried not to go to restaurants where there are a lot of tourists. And uh, just try to find a little restaurant with uh, local food uh, and uh, local recipe. Very good advice. Follow the locals. Ask the locals. Don't go if you don't see the locals. I think that's pretty, pretty good. So that's all the time that we have. If you are interested in finding out about Novolize, they are N-O-V-O-L-Y-Z-E dot com. If you are interested in Biotrack, it is B-I-O-T-R-A-Q dot com. If you're interested in TechBytes, Go to heritageradionetwork.org backslash techbytes. You can also find us on iTunes and Stitcher Radio. You can find us on social media at techbyteshrn, on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. You can email us, techbytes at heritageradionetwork.org. And I think that's pretty much it, but we're very interactive. We would love to hear what you think, what you thought about this show, apps you like, companies you want to hear about, trends you're following. We'd love to hear it all. I want to thank DJ Uptown Nico, who is the man who created our amazing theme song that you hear at the beginning and end of every show. If you like that song, you can find him, uh, Uptown Nico, N-I-K-K-O. He is on SoundCloud. And I think that's all we have for this episode of Tech Bites. I'm Jennifer Leutzi. Come back and see us at 11 a.m. on Thursdays. Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network. Food radio supported by you. 
For our freshest content and to hear about exclusive events, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be a part of the food world's most innovative community? Rate the shows you like, tell your friends, and please join our community by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening.